0: Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. We continue this morning our study in the book of Nehemiah. The dates in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are some of the most vital parts of the book. Have you noticed those dates? Did you write them in the margins as we've been studying? Some of them are in the text and some need to be written in. This particular story happens in the first month. That is the month Nisan. Look in chapter 2, verse 1. In the month Nisan. When Artaxerxes had been governor or emperor for 20 years. Nisan is the first month. You can compare that with January. Chapter 1... Verse 1 tells us that he heard about this. That is the events began in what month? In chapter 1 verse 1. Kislev. That is the ninth month. So from September to January would be about 4 months passing. For 4 months Nehemiah has had these weights pondering on him. I'm sorry weights pressing on him. He has been pondering them. For four months. Four months of heavy weight, stress, fear, and doubt. What is causing this? What is the the whole point of the book? In the second chapter, the fear and the weight reaches its climax because now he's going to talk to the king. And there are three questions that the king will ask. This man, you can circle the question marks if you want. You'll see one there in verse 2, then again in verse 4, then again in verse 6. Things far beyond Nehemiah's power are pulling together with some kind of magnetic, magnetic influence. So that the nation of Israel, the future of the nation will move forward. Unstoppably moving forward to its designed end. But wait a minute, remember. What did Sir Isaac Newton put into words for us? Objects at rest tend to remain at rest. If you've begun to push a vehicle to jumpstart it, it's very difficult when you first get started But after it's rolling, it's not so difficult to keep it going. The nation of Israel has stopped for 13 years. You might want to mark down, if you haven't already, right beside Nehemiah chapter 1, you might want to mark down 445 BC. And this will correlate back to the book of Ezra chapter 7, where you may have written 45 BC. 8 BC. Remember the BC dates count downward coming up to Christ. So from Ezra chapter 7, 458, to Nehemiah chapter 1, 445, we have 13 years. We know that because in Ezra chapter 7, it says in the seventh year of Artaxerxes. And now we're at what year? The 20th year. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, Nehemiah chapter 2. Verse 1, we're at the 20th year. 13 years have passed since Ezra. And from that time, we're about to find out, or we found out last week, Israel's progress had stopped. So, what can move an entire nation along when it has become entrenched like a car long stuck in the mud? What could move it forward? Not one man or ten men, but thousands of men. Not something small, but the entire purposes of God for the world and for all of time, space, history combined. What could move that forward? That's the subject of this morning's message. I'll say it in these words. It might be my shortest thesis statement ever. Chapter two, verses one to eight, only four words to summarize these eight verses. And it may be a very powerful message to your soul. That's what I've been praying this week. I was very encouraged Friday with a time of prayer that this passage might open up to you. As we read earlier, you might think, well, all this is is a record like Nehemiah's journal of how he went to talk to the king. It's remarkable, it's interesting, but how could it be life-changing? Life-changing. Four words. Providence makes progress possible. I ask you, have you ever found a time when you feel as if you're not moving forward spiritually? Every year, when I visit the members of this church, I ask them this question. Are you going, was this last year... A year where you grew, a year where you fell, or a year where you stayed the same. And I phrase it that way because many people fall, but they're afraid to say they fell. So I give them three options. Basically, so you know, the middle option or the bottom option, they're the same. Because if you're not going up, that's a kind of failure. So I'll ask them, did you grow this year or did you fall this year or did you basically stay the same? If you answered, I fell, or if you answered, I stayed the same, I'm going to ask, well, I ask this question regardless. Why? What happened so that you stayed the same or what happened so that you fell? Or if you grew, what happened so that you grew? If you have ever thought to yourself, this last year, I kind of stayed the same. I want you to know that providence can make the difference. That's the point of this passage. These eight verses will show to you that providence can change. You say, well, I've been spinning my wheels in the mud. Providence can change that. I've got to give you this illustration because it's so fresh on my mind. And fresh illustrations are the ones that are usually received very well. Yesterday we built in... Valdasia, four bags of cement, but it was raining. So I took the bucky and I did what you should do if it's in the rain and you're on very muddy roads. I asked one of the young men to drive. So he drove along and sure enough, I knew there was this very muddy spot that's tricky. And it's a little bit on an angle. Not an angle going up, but an angle going on the side so the bucky wants to slide off the road. And Langu was driving. He's a pretty good driver. And as he was driving along, he slipped off the side into the mud. And I, okay, whoa, slow down now. Clutch and brake. Put it into four by four. First time he'd used four by four. He slid the gear down. Okay, pull forward very slowly. Oh, not enough RPMs. It died. Try again. More RPMs, Uh, it died. He was afraid to give it too much. It was difficult to get it started again. Yeah, but it's a Toyota 4x4, it can get out. It was difficult to get it started again. So what did we do? You should have been there yesterday. We changed drivers. (laughs) My point for this story is it is difficult to start again when you have been stuck. But once we got out, you could turn around and look in just those few moments of being stuck in the rain, in the mud. It had already developed a very deep trench where the left-hand side wheels had begun to spin. And if you feel like that's your life... That's what's happening the whole way through this book. And if you think, Seth, your messages sound like they're repeating, that might be because these are repeated themes in Ezra and Nehemiah. But it's good to repeat the best things. Don't you like to eat the best foods again and again? If you hear a song that's really beautiful, don't you want to click repeat? Here, God has repeated these themes over and over in different ways, and we're going to see it from a different perspective this morning. There are two points in the message. One is progress, the other is providence. The first five verses talk about progress. The next three verses show how that progress was unusually accomplished. Let's begin right at the beginning, verse one. Progress is what we want, that's the first point. Of this passage. Progress is what we want. Ezra and Nehemiah are the story of progress. Before we look at chapter one, we've got to remember that chapter one is, I'm sorry, chapter two, verse one, we've got to remember that chapter two, verse one is the continuation of a story. Where did the story begin? It began with this God has a purpose to give his son a body. How can he give his son a body without a mother? Which is why women are so important. Without godly womanhood, without femininity, without women, we couldn't have Jesus. The whole reason we have women is so that God could take flesh. Well, if, women, if a woman's going to have the Messiah... There's got to be a line through whom they come. So God calls Abram from the pagans. Pagan, dirty, backward people, worshiping the sun, worshiping the moon, confused and backward in their thinking. And God says, I'll take Abraham. Yes, but he's a savage. I love saving savages. He pulls Abraham out. Abraham is going to become the father of a great nation, but the nation fails at every turn. As soon as God works these amazing miracles so amazing that he turns the entire Nile River to blood and all the Israelites knew it he does more when Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. Every single firstborn son and only the firstborn son dies at midnight or throughout the night and a cry rises up wailing from the capital city of Egypt, but not from the squatter camp of Goshen, where all the Jews have been pressed. And so they come out with a mighty hand. They're terrified when they reach the Red Sea because God raised up Pharaoh. And even after his son died, he said, let's crush them. Get all the army together. They muster the army and chase after them. And the Israelites are terrified. And then what happens? How could you be more amazed than to see an entire ocean, a sea, pressed back so that there are many meters of water standing up with an invisible wall of invisible glass holding them there? Could they see the sharks swimming as they walked through in the very first aquarium? On both sides, they're walking in the midst of this aquarium and their feet touched dry ground. He even dried up the sand so they wouldn't get muddy for all the mothers who were even concerned about that. They went right through it. What would you have felt walking through? Do you think the little children touched out their hand, reached out their hand to touch the water? No, they say, get your hands back, get your hands back, just Walk. And they marched the whole way through it in a single night and got through to the other side. And then they're amazed, but it's still a problem because the path is still there. And the Egyptians say, let's use the same road. It's been well traveled. And God brings back the water and pulls back the invisible glass. And the water crushes them so that they can see the dead bodies of the Egyptians up on the shore. And they failed. Because they begin complaining. And in my Bible, I listed over 10 times when they complain after complain after complain in just a few months. And because of their constant complaining, which evidence that they would not believe, as is recorded in Psalm 95, David writes an entire song about the negative theme of their failure. And he wants the children of Israel to sing about their own failure so they'll stop it. The false teachers, by the way, today, don't ever want you to think about your failure. They say, you're a success. You're a wonderful success. Paul Schleiland is in the U.S. right now preaching at some conferences. And he sent me a shirt that said, uh, amazing, excellent black king. There was a whole series of shirts celebrating blackness. Imagine if they'd celebrated whiteness. What would have happened? Our world is drunk on this insane idea that you should talk good about yourself. Well, David says, actually, why don't, you, why don't you sing a song? Let's all stand together and sing We're Miserable Failures Who Died. Why don't you sing a song that way so you'll stop your miserable failure? Well, it goes on because in the time of the judges, they did the same thing even though God gave them amazing gifted men and still more miracles. And then with the Kings, they failed again so much so that God had to bring about all the purposes that he promised on them. All the curses of Deuteronomy 28 came on them and they were taken out of their land. Just as he said, because God is a God who keeps his promises. Even when the promises are negative, he's not only going to give you good promises. He'll give you the bad promises He will do exactly what he says. And if you go on your own way and play with him and toy with him like he's your puppy, he will give all the negative promises. You can only toy with him so long. And so what happens? In 586 BC, actually begins in 608 or 725 BC with the Northern Kingdom. uh, Chance after chance, God begins to deport the children of Israel first under the... um, Assyrians, and then under the Babylonians, and now they've been for 70 years. But progress begins again in Ezra chapter one, when God reaches out and touches Cyrus, the king and Zerubbabel, the godly man stands up and says, I'll lead over 40,000 Jews back to Israel. And what do they do when they just begin to build the foundation? They all weep and laugh and sing for joy just because they built the foundation of the temple. They don't have the walls, they don't have shops, they don't have streets, they don't have a society, but they got the foundation done. They give up, and for 20 years they stop. Then they get back to work again, 16 years they stop, and then after four years they finish the temple. And then they sing and rejoice again, but they're not done yet, the walls are still broken, the shops aren't built, the roads aren't done, there's no safety and security, but at least they're moving forward. Why are they rejoicing in Ezra chapter 6 when they finish building the temple? They're not done yet. Not by a long shot. They've got a lot of work to do. But they're happy because they know we're back on the right road. Just like in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Three young travelers are going on an adventure. And so they get taken by giants. Oh no, what are they going to do? They're terrified. They run from the giants Slip down and fall down a hole. And they say, what can we do down in this hole? And then one of them turns to the others and says, well, at least we're back on the right track. We're finally obeying the signs that were given to us. That's exactly right. They hadn't finished their quest, but they were obeying the signs again. The Jews in Ezra chapter six are obeying the signs again. They're following the right path again. They're moving forward. That's what they need to do. It goes on until Ezra chapter 7 when Ezra returns with 5,000 more Jews. And then in Ezra chapter 9 when he takes another step. Every time it's one step forward. One step forward. And now we're in Nehemiah chapter 1. And Nehemiah needs to go forward again. And he realizes for 13 years we've stopped again. How often does this happen? We take a step forward and then 10 years, 13 years, 15 years, 20 years of wasted time. Is that your life? One step forward, two steps back. One step forward, wasted time again. This is where we're at right now. And so look at chapter two, verse one. It came to pass in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been previously sad in his presence. Why is he sad. They're not moving forward. They're stuck in the mud. So the king moves the matter forward. Look at verse two. So the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you're not sick? Question. King asked him a question. What a thoughtful man. The emperor of the largest empire in the world cares enough to ask you, what's the problem, man? Nehemiah is afraid to speak. Look at verse number two. Then I was very much afraid. Why would he be afraid? He might have been afraid that his request would appear that he was not loyal to the king or to the empire of Persia. He was afraid perhaps because he thought, I have one chance at this. Do you remember the name Artaxerxes? You should. Ezra chapter four. Artaxerxes had previously sent a letter to the Jews in Jerusalem and said, Stop all your work. I don't want your society to go on. Stop it anymore, and I'll send my soldiers after you. That's Ezra chapter 4. Artaxerxes, this king, had attacked the Jews. Nehemiah is afraid. What if he goes back to his old ways? Then we'll have no chance to move forward, not even quietly and secretly. Nehemiah is afraid. What if I lose my head? What if I lose my life? What if I lose my job? What if he thinks I'm not being loyal to the king? He's afraid. So, what does he do? He asks a question back, verse 3 Let the king live forever. Why should my countenance, my face not be sad? when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, is desolate, the gates thereof are consumed with fire? He answers a question with a question. He phrases it in a wise and thoughtful way, so to be sure to appear respectful and not disloyal. He's using his logic as best he can. This particular king. Listens well. And so he answer, asks a question again, verse four. Then the king said to me, "What are you requesting?" The king's wise. He understands, "Oh, you want something. What do you want?" And this is now the peak, the climax. You've just climbed right up to the very top of your fears. You have just faced your fears. If you're afraid of small places like getting into an elevator, you always take the stairs because you're afraid of getting into a small place. Well, then maybe you should look at it and just stand there and look for a while. Then take a step closer and just look at it. And this is what Nehemiah's done. He's gone closer and closer to his fears. And now here's my greatest fear. He wants to know what I want. And I want safety and passage to be able to get to my people and build them up and move that nation forward. But what if I get a bad answer? What does he say? Nehemiah does what he ought to do. He follows his habit. You cannot follow your habit in stress unless you formed your habit before the stress came. Let me give you an example. If you are playing soccer and you're not practiced or prepared, when the ball comes to you, you'll make a bad choice. You'll kick too hard. You'll shoot on goal when you should pass. But if you practice in private until it is natural to your foot to know how to respond, you may perform correctly under stress. High stress jobs require a great amount of practice until it's natural. It always comes off that way. Perhaps you've seen a karate match or a martial arts match or sports on the highest level or violinists. Have you ever seen a violinist playing one of the Brandenburg concertos from Bach? The fingers of that violinist have to fly. There's no way anyone could make decisions that quickly for their fingers, you're gonna have to practice that for hundreds or thousands of hours until your fingers move automatically. I play the guitar, if you can call what I do, playing. But I've played so much now that I am uh, accustomed to moving C, D, G, E, A, my eight chords or so that I know. But I've played those chords so often that I can now play while looking up. I couldn't do that at first. Nehemiah was so accustomed to prayer that when he reaches the peak of his stress, he doesn't blurt out an answer. He doesn't say something foolish. He does not do what many do and take God's name in vain. Why do they take God's name in vain? Because for years they have a habit of thinking low and foolish thoughts of God. They have accustomed themselves to thinking little thoughts of God and to letting any word come out that comes into their head. And now, Nehemiah does what naturally comes to his head. Look down at verse number four. So I prayed to the God of heaven. But the book never tells us that God spoke to Nehemiah. Which tells us what? Nehemiah prayed and believed without having been... Told or without hearing any kind of charismatic answer he just trusted what he knew from the law of God so what does the king say look down at verse 5 I said to the king if it pleases the king if your servant has found favor in thy sight that you would send me to Judah to the city of my father's sepulchers so that I may build it this is it He gives his request. He tells them the whole goal. There's no trickery and there's no subtlety. The country is supposed to be safe and secure, and it's not. That's what I want. Friends, achievement is not the goal of the Jews, continual progress is the goal. Their goal was not merely to go back to Jerusalem. That was the first thing. When they rejoiced when it happened. Their goal was not merely to build the foundation, but they rejoiced when it happened. Their goal was not merely to build the temple, but they rejoiced when that happened. Their goal was not to bring back Ezra, but they rejoiced when that happened. Their goal was not to restore the family, but they rejoiced when that happened. There's five steps. Each step they took has been recorded meticulously in Ezra. And every time they took a step, they were happy when they made that step. And after every step, they tended to stop. And be condemned. Oh, well, I'm, I'm good. Let's just sit back and rest a while. Now they reach step six if you're following the account. Their goal was not merely to go forward. Do you think Nehemiah is going to be happy if we have the walls built and the temple built, but there's no roads inside? There's no shops. There's no commerce. There's no families. There's no happy children playing. There's no grandmas picking up their little children. There's no restoration of temple sacrifices. Do you think they're going to be happy if the society is not operating according to the law of God where in Deuteronomy chapter six it said, you are intended to be a light to the nations so that the nations would say, what people is there with laws so just and with a God so holy? That was the goal. The goal was a society flourishing and growing so that all of the nations of the world would look to them and say, those people are different. This this step that Nehemiah has asked for will not get them to the goal. It's only one step further. When I ask you to join the church, when I tell you to give your testimony, when I want you to be involved, when we try to start a Bible study, when we have a theology class, when we take some further step with the church, when we begin family worship with our children, we are not reaching the end. We're only going one more step on the road. Church attendance, consistently giving money. All of these are just one more step. One more month, one more year, one more decade. The goal is constant forward motion. In Dante's poem, The Divine Comedy, he constant, his guide is constantly telling him, go forward, go forward, go forward. Stop it, you're going too slow. Move forward. That's the whole point of the second book. Don't go slow. Run. Have you read the Pilgrim's Progress? That's the story of the whole book of Pilgrim's Progress. Don't stop and sleep. And what does Pilgrim say when he stops to sleep? Oh, my sinful sleep, Pilgrim says. That's the story of the Lord of the Rings. And Aragorn says at one point, I stayed too long in Lothlorien. I should have been moving forward. We should not slow down. Now in their 20th year of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah weeps because they surge forward and then they stop. Have you ever tried to start moving again and then fallen back? And this is what they've done. Friends, I want to tell you that each new day requires another further step of faithfulness and commitment. Every day that you get up, you're going to have to go back and say, the step I can do today is to read my Bible, to memorize my verse. I can pray. Today, I can be faithful at work. Today, I can confess yesterday's sins. Today, I can lead my children by example. Today, I can read and pray with my family before I go to sleep. I've got to do that today. I've got to finish the day and get to the end like Paul said as he's in prison. And I need to be able to say, for to me, to live is Christ today. Today, I'm looking back over those 16 hours from the time I got up to now 10 o'clock when I'm going to bed and I can look back and I can say, I stored that day away for eternity. Stop giving us your big promises. Well, I'm going to and just take one day, one step and say today from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. Today is going to be locked away for eternity. That's what this is picturing. There's got to be forward progress. Every new generation is going to have to step up to the plate and swing the bat and hit the ball. Any of these steps were enough by themselves for the men that experienced them. But none of these steps were enough for all of the people. It needs constant progress. There is no arrival, only pursuit. Is that a biblical idea? As long as you're alive, there is no arrival because death is your arrival or the second coming of Jesus. There is no arrival for you, only pursuit. Your arrival is death, so look forward to it with a smile. But until we die or until our Lord comes back, there's gotta be pursuit. Let me give you the best example. Who can think of a book in the New Testament that pictures pursuit, not arrival? Can anyone think of a book of the New Testament that it gives us the best proof text. I know you know it. Well done. Philippians chapter 3 verse 12. Paul says this to the Philippians while he's in jail. Not as though I had already arrived. Either that I was already perfect. But I keep pursuing. If by any means I might obtain. I might lay hold. That for which I was chosen. And then he says, I press on toward the mark. Paul, you press on, you're in your 60s. Paul, you press on, you're the model Christian. He's gonna say that four verses later. He's gonna say, I'm the model Christian, just follow me. Why should we follow Paul? Because even in his 60s, while stuck in prison, while poor, while unable to free himself, even in that hard place, Paul says, I'm the model because even now I'm not stopping. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I know that when he comes back, or I know that when I die, there will be a calling when he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the point. You are laboring and working and fighting for that calling. You are taking one more step for that calling that he would say to me, well done, If that's not your goal, then let this passage shake you and wake you up. Nehemiah was weeping and terrified because he said, we're not moving forward. And in the New Testament, it's Paul. Brothers and sisters, move forward. And you move forward by taking today and saying, what can I do today? What can I change today? What law and command am I not doing today? This is what... Paul would have them do. And he even says in Philippians 3, verse 15, let us therefore have this attitude. What attitude? We're going to keep moving forward. Failure is stopping. And stopping is a reason to weep, to fast, to pray, and to be sad. Don't weep and fast and pray merely over the fact that you heard there's cancer. In your body or in your family, the weeping, the, stop, the the weeping, the fasting, the praying is what our Lord said, Matthew ten verse twenty two. The one who endures until what point? The end will be saved. Matthew ten twenty two. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Let there be weeping and fasting and sadness when you are not enduring, when you are saying, "Oh, let me quit." I'm tired, let me give up. Of course you're tired. God has designed it to be tiring. We're going to deal with that in the next point, which I must rush on to right now. Nehemiah is burdened because the work has stopped. He's afraid. And yet something must be done by his own decisions. And yet not only his decisions. Look at verse 6. The king said to me, the queen also beside him, how long will your journey be? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. There it is. Nehemiah did something. He was faithful with what he could do. He kept serving the king, right? Are you following the picture? It's really very simple. What did Nehemiah do for four months? He prays. He keeps working at his job. He keeps on his mind What? The people have to go forward. The people have to go forward. At the first possible chance, I'm going to talk about it. At the first possible chance, I'm going to move forward. And then the king says, why are you sad? How could I not be sad when we're not moving forward? What do you want? I want you to send me. He does what he can. He opens his mouth. He speaks when he should. What did Nehemiah do? He prayed. He conquered his fears. He trusted. He did the things you can do, the things you must do, the things you are called to do. And then he saw things happen that were beyond his control. And that's the providence. God moved the emperor. What do you think went through Nehemiah's heart when he heard the third question? How long will you go? chapter 2 verse 6 Nehemiah gives the king a time limit and he goes there for 12 years Nehemiah 13 verse 6 the king was pleased to let Nehemiah go so Nehemiah also says then give me protection and give me supplies verse 7 I said to the king if it pleases the king then may he give me letters to the governors beyond the river so they can keep me safe while I go And also a letter to Asaph to give me lumber, planks, timber, wood to build up the wall of the the palace, the wall of the house I'm going to live in, the doors, the gates. This help was the work of God. Let me give you about seven ways that God was involved in this. Number one, Nehemiah could have had a different job so that he was never in contact with the king. Where did Nehemiah work? He's the king's butler. Number two, the king might not have noticed Nehemiah's sadness. If you're the most powerful man in the world, you tend not to notice your servants when they're sad. You're the king. Like I pay you to be happy. Hey, you're sad? Come, come back another day. Oh, you know these poor people. They change every time. Number three, the king might have been angry at the request As if Nehemiah were trying to betray Persia. Remember, the king was a pagan. History tells us that he killed his eldest brother and probably his second brother in order to become the king of Persia. He's a bad guy. Remember in Ezra chapter 4, he had already said, no, you Jews, stop it. It was irrational. He had a presupposition that biased him against Israel. He listened to fools. Well, why wouldn't he do the same thing again? Number four, The king might have thought Nehemiah was trying to betray Persia. That's it. I'm sorry, that's number three that I just read. Number four, the king might not have wanted to waste protection or supplies. Number five, the king had already opposed this work. Number six, the king had already spent money helping Ezra to return in Ezra chapter seven. But number seven Thirteen years later, the king is still willing to do it again. Now, here's where it gets amazing. This is the fifth time that God has reached his invisible hand into the heart of the emperor of the largest empire in the world. Cyrus, a hundred years earlier, had his heart twisted and turned and changed to give Israel what they needed. After Cyrus. 20 years later came Darius. And Darius was going to say no. But God reached in and said. Say yes to them. Okay I'll say yes. After Darius comes Ahazuerus, That's the king under Ezra. That maybe we'll go to next. After we finish Nehemiah. Ahasuerus was going to say. Destroy all of the Jews. But God reached his invisible hand. Into the king's heart and said. Why don't you save all of them. He twisted that king. Artaxerxes with Ezra, 20 years later, he reaches into Artaxerxes and turns him, 13 years later, the same king, he turns that king. Here's the point. Five times with four kings over 100 years, God twisted them, God turned them, God changed them, God made them so they would think the right way. It is nothing with God to say, I can turn a king. If God can turn a king, why not your husband? If God can turn a king, why not your wife? Why not your child? Why not your father or your mother? If he can do that, what is it to him to answer prayers and say, I'm going to help you move forward? Why don't you pray like Nehemiah and make it your habit? And you might go on praying for four months, not seeing an answer. And remember, Nehemiah did not have the New Testament. He had only the Torah. Some people think that Ezra wrote the books of first and second Kings or first and second Chronicles. What did Ezra have? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I'm sorry, Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah just had those five books. And with those five books, and without a church, and without fellow believers to strengthen him, they trusted in God and went on praying day after day, and week after week, and month after month. And God did amazing things as he had done four other times in their history. It was God who worked. And so that brings me to this. God is the one who must bring about great help. But this help was not a miracle. Most of God's work is not done through miracles. Can you see a difference in these two things? Here's the first thing. God pushing back the waters of the Red Sea and creating an invisible wall of glass on either side. He's sucking out the water from the sand underneath and pushing it back inside those aquarium on either side. Can you see that miracle and then this? Please send me back to Jerusalem. All right, how long do you want to go? Can you see a difference in those two? What's the difference? One is the quiet exertion of God's power, and one is the loud exertion of God's power. One is a sweet flute that you hear and it seems to entrance you. The other is a trumpet saying, Listen to this. But both are the work of God. Which way? fills history the most. The blast of God's trumpet or the sweet flute going through all of history. I think throughout history, God has done most of his work through quiet instances of providence. And do you see what happens? False believers, goats, don't like quiet movements of God's spirit. They want trumpet blasts. They say, give me miracles again. I'm in this hard place Pour out on me the job that gets 30,000 rand a month. Give me some amazing miracle. I'll only be happy with the miracle, and I'm going to demand it. And if you don't give me that, I'll go to some other church that will promise me. And if you don't give me that, I'll go to some place where with their lights, or their smoke, or their shouting, or their music, or their dress, or their activities, or their words. I'll go some place that I'll at least get the feeling that I've got some miracle. Even if it's not a miracle, I'll go some place that at least moves me toward the sensational. But most of God's work has been done through quiet, slow influences of his spirit through the hearts of his people. Isn't that how you were probably converted? Did God come down like the Apostle Paul and throw you off your horse and blind you for three days? Did he speak to you with an audible voice and say, why are you killing my people? Lord, who are you? Did he do that to you when he saved you? If he didn't do that to you, then it was probably the quiet work of his providential hand. Still God. And you need to become accustomed to seeing that and rejoicing. Let me ask you, why does God work quietly? Here's the answer. Because when he works quietly, he forces us to trust his word and his character more so than when he comes with great miracles. What does it take to trust God when he commands the sun to stand still in the sky? If you saw the sun standing still, would you you believe that God was at work? If you went to a funeral and you saw the dead man get out of the casket, would you believe God was at work? It doesn't take anything to believe with overwhelming power like that. When you see that amazing power, you know God is doing something. If you saw the miracles promised in the book of Revelation... What would it take to believe? If you saw the the clouds pulling back and a white horse coming down, if you saw Jesus Christ himself, what would it take you to believe? You'd say, well, that'd be simple to believe. Exactly. But what would it take you to believe if you only have his word and quiet, slow influences, so quiet that you drown them out with WhatsApp and Facebook and smartphones? You drown them out with the mall. You walk through the mall and it's hard for you to believe when you see the pictures on the storefront at Jet and Markram's. Oh yeah, I would like that shirt. Oh, that jacket's not. Oh, look at that jacket. And your thoughts of God are gone. Your thoughts of your sin and confession are gone. But to still believe in God and to trust in God in the midst of Checkers has a great sale. To still believe in God and trust in God when oh, did you see that car? I wish i had that one wait, wait it's a hunk of metal that's what it is my new to me bucky was damaged yesterday the boys broke it and i was frustrated until i remembered alphys's example when i was with him at a funeral years ago when he had just purchased his new ford bucky he had too many people climb in the back and in the mud, it slid and scraped along some metal. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And he said something, I don't know if this is an exact quote, but something just like this. He said, things are things. I just bought this to be able to take people to church. And I felt rebuked. He's got the right idea. It's metal. And God's even going to make that metal burn when Jesus comes back. And if, if my Hilux was damaged, building a church to the glory of God... Well, that's probably the best wartime injury you could take, right? I should give that Bucky the purple heart. Brothers and sisters, God has providentially worked in this way. And God's providence is the hope of the Christian. He's the hope for you. Providence will keep us from falling and only providence. That's why Jude sings in the end of the book of Jude, now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the throne. We sang that song today before the throne of God above. God's providence, his quiet, slow work through his church, through his people, through prayer and talking and reading. God's providence is doing these things. Providence is the ongoing careful watch of God over his people. It is his eternal watchfulness. It is his unfailing care for detail. Aren't you one of God's details? He could forget you because you're so small. You're just dust. And you're not just dust. You're angry dust that has sinned against him and broken his covenant. And yet he doesn't forget sinful, angry, rebellious, insulting, blaspheming dust. What a mercy. Providence is his wise and smooth and brilliant harmony. Providence is the true symphony. A symphony is a piece of music played together with many instruments so that you've got your strings, your violin, and your cello, and your bass, and then you've got your brass, your trumpet, and your trombone, and your French horn, your tuba, and then you've got your wind with your flutes, and your clarinet, and your oboe, and your piano, and your drums, and all of that is together in the symphony and God's providence is his symphony. It's his blending together of Artaxerxes and Darius and Cyrus, along with Zerubbabel and Ezra and all 40,000 people, some of whose names are written, but not all. His symphony is his working through all of those people to bring you where you are. It's a verse that I've quoted often. Are you sleeping now? Are you distracted? Get, 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 follow me here. I'm, I'm close to the end. First Corinthians chapter 3. At the end of that chapter, he says, for you are Christ's, and Christ is God's, all things are yours. All things are yours? He means he's taking everything, everything is in his symphony, everything in the world, sin and death and war and Ukraine and Russia and rising petrol prices and SCOM shortages and the way everything is happening, it's all his symphony that he is playing It might be a minor key right now, but it's all his symphony that he's playing to bring you about to perfection. All of it. He's using it to make you move forward. And this is a great danger for us because many people are falling away. This year, I am beginning something that I've never done before. I'm beginning a chart that will record all the people that we baptize and all the member of each of our churches and church plants. At the end of the year, I'm going to record who we baptized that year and who was removed from membership that year so that in time over 10 or 20 years, I'll be able to see how long people persevered. But I can give you examples right now of people that we baptized who after six months fell away and then some after a year and some after two years, they stopped making forward progress. Brothers and sisters, where will you be? Forward progress is the goal. But it's providence that makes it possible. So you need to go in thanks and gratitude and joy and get back a high view of God and a high view of God's thoughts toward you and a high view of God toward moving forward. You need to think about God and his movements the way he wants you to think. And Nehemiah 2 is one of the best passages to make you do that. Nehemiah does his part trying to move forward. And God says, that's all I want because I'm doing my part so that you'll move forward as well. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit to deal mightily in our souls, to give us your view of providence, your view of work, your view of, conf- uh, of confidence and moving forward, your view of the entire world. Help us to think that way and to feel that way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.